Welcome to Post Wave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. Today we're talking about UBI. Yeah, so so UBI stands for Universal Basic Income, which basically just means in its most essential form, giving people a certain amount of cash per month with no strings attached. And it's been popularized by by Andrew Yang, probably most prominently. Just a quick disclaimer that we're two musicians and composers who like to talk about a bunch of topics that are sometimes slightly beyond our wheelhouse. If we say anything that's factually incorrect, or even if you just disagree with us, we really love if you send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know. So so I didn't know what UBI stood for uh, when you first brought it up, I think. Really? Yeah. Had Had you heard of the concept, though? I had, yeah universal basic income so what's the dealio (laughs) (laughs) so so had had you heard about it through andrew yang like what's where's the like the first place you remember oh i don't know it's just like something that was in my i don't know it was just something that floated around and i picked it up it was it was it was before I don't think it was Andrew Yang. I think I mean it was it was years ago that I first heard of the idea. Yeah, yeah. So I mean the the idea has been around for for a while, but I think yeah, I think for a lot of people, myself included, no no one thought it was like a realistic possibility in the U.S. I think mm. until Andrew Yang came along. But a, a lot of the people who've been kind of raising the alarm are people in, in big tech and people who work with AI who predict that that the displacement of workers from AI will not follow the same pattern that uh, that happened when workers were displaced because of other technology. Like, you know, industrial manufacturing in the, the early 20th century um, obviously took away a lot of jobs, but new jobs were created, that kind of thing. But f- according to the people who are like closest to the issue, the the jobs that are taken away by increasingly powerful AI will not have will not, will not create new jobs in their wake that are that are able to be performed by the same people who are losing their jobs to to AI that's really interesting um, so I'm, I'm curious though how do we know that how can we make that assertion I mean of course you know of course you can't say anything for sure about about the future but the idea is that eventually it won't because because you know right now the the only thing pretty pretty much the only things that can be mechanized are you know like assembly line type things you know like like construction uh manufacturing but increasingly it's going to be intellectual work Mm -hmm. and we're already kind of seeing that you know with with big data and machine learning that uh is, is being used to to turn out results that um, you know, it would take a bunch of really smart people like pouring over the data for a long time to reach the same, the same conclusions, right? Yeah. What are some examples of that? 
you mean like specifically with big data and, and machine learning? Or, yeah, or at least, yeah, how, how is machine learning, like what are some examples of how machine learning is taking over intellectual processes and outperforming humans? I mean, it depends what you mean by intellectual. I mean, if, if you think about just, you know, the idea of like targeting ads towards people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, where where there would usually be a lot of, you know, like psychology involved and, you know, marketing uh, research, that kind of thing. If it can just be reduced to to a bunch of data that can be fed into a machine learning algorithm that'll that'll predict which users will click on the on which ads super accurately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it takes much less effort to put together that data and put it in the algorithm than it would for like a team full of people to do all that guesswork themselves. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of intellectual work that still needs to be done by humans to you know, determine what, what the right data sets to use and how to, you know, c- construct the, the machine learning program and, you know, get, get rid of bias and all that, that kind of stuff and overfitting the, da- the data. Hmm. But it's, yeah, I mean, I, I think th- things are being done with machine learning that could not be done by, you know, like any, any team of humans working on their own, no matter, you know, how big I think. Totally. Um, yeah. yeah, I actually saw some uh, other examples of applications of machine learning in, uh, so it's specifically in architecture, game design, and other design, like, uh, for example, vehicle design. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really cool uh, images I saw of, like, in architecture, you sort of give, like, the basic constraints and frameworks you're working with and then the computer just hashes out like millions of possible solutions and guesses which are the best ones and then you can just basically pick like which ones you like um (laughs) interesting and uh and and that that crosses over into video game design as well for like uh world building or you know you can like let's say you have like this cabin design and then you can just sort of uh, the, the uh, cabin design that was produced with artificial intelligence. But the mm-hmm. thing about that is, if it produced the one, it produced like a million. So mm-hmm. you can have all that variance of all those different uh, cool and unique designs to populate the world. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, and one of the I think one of the. This this isn't doesn't necessarily translate into like displacing jobs, but did you hear about the the alpha fold like protein folding? No. So I think a good example of something that's been a very recent big advance in machine learning that maybe hasn't quite led to the displace, displacement of jobs yet, but I think has you know has the potential to affect things in a big way is is uh, alpha fold, which was developed by by DeepMind which is like a, um, a company that's owned by Google. Um, but that, that was solving the, the protein folding problem, which basically just predicts giving us, uh, given a certain amino acid chain, what the protein shape is going to be, which is really hard to do. Um, Mm -hmm. but that has, that has implications for a bunch of, uh, you know, drug development, that kind of thing and Mm -hmm. and medical applications Mm -hmm. that I think that's a good example of, you know, intellectual work being done. That's, 
that would be really hard for for humans to do otherwise mm. but um i think i mean i think the biggest example that i think will probably kind of be a big trigger for for a push towards ui is is self-driving cars by by far and self-driving trucks yeah right yeah i don't know if you so- consider that intellectual work yet but i think i think when we get to that point when those are pretty ubiquitous it's going to like enough people are going to be out of work that that ubi kind of kind of becomes a necessity yeah right all the truck drivers and cab drivers and yeah delivery people yeah and i think we're it's an interesting thing to talk about like the the perception of where self-driving cars are and like where they actually are because i you know i for a long time was like oh yeah tesla already has like autopilot but um i mean tesla tesla's autopilot is still technically you need to supervise it at all times like have your hand on the wheel i'm pretty sure um Mm -hmm. you're supposed to um and there are there are other companies like waymo and comma.ai that are working on like more fully autonomous self-driving cars but yeah it's still a ways away Mm. that's interesting because i thought that where we were already like self-driving cars were outperforming humans in terms of like not getting in accidents uh i think that's true in like general general cases but i from what i understand with self-driving cars it's all about like the edge cases like the things that happen you know one in a million times mm-hmm. that the, com- the mm-hmm. computer just has like no idea how to deal with um right you know like bad bad road conditions and and um you know pedestrians that are behaving in weird ways and and um you know drivers that are behaving in, in weird ways i'm going to forget the exact like delineations but there's basically like five different uh stages of self-driving cars or, or levels and level five is like fully autonomous you know doesn't need a driver in the car at all um and they each get you know a little bit more supervised and i think tesla is at like level two right now mm. so like still like fairly far away from um like fully autonomous mm. Yeah, because I remember what I was hearing, like, and this is a couple of years ago, but that while self-driving cars, I guess in normal conditions, generally outperform humans in, ter- in terms of safety, they still are susceptible to messing up in ways that humans wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the safest thing is to have the self-driving car driving itself while the human is is watching carefully mm-hmm. over it mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think it'll it might it might be for a long time or always be that um yeah self-driving cars are are safer and that they they avoid the mistakes humans make but they, they it's still possible for them to make mistakes that humans like you said that humans wouldn't make and and be dangerous in that way but in the mm-hmm. in the end it might be it might still like on average be better to just have a have a car that's just driving itself rather than a human that's just driving the car yeah i mean that seems to be the inevitable place we're going yeah yeah it's just it's just like an interesting question like i i guess we're getting a little off track on the ubi thing but like how will we deal as a society with you know your life not being as much in your own hands when you're on the road like isn't that kind of weird like um it's yeah it's i mean like, i guess it's weird but it's also kind of like what 
is already the case, just maybe not as apparent. Yeah, right. Because there, there's still like situations you get in where like it wouldn't be your fault at all, and you would still get hurt or whatever. Yeah, but um, and I, and I think that's like the standard mode of of being for drivers who aren't dangerous drivers. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you have any amount of caution, it's like that's just kind of the baseline, and but you're still just as susceptible as anyone else to uh, getting fucked over by the crazy drivers. Yeah, yeah. So maybe let's just go over Andrew Yang's proposal since, that, since that's probably the one that people are most familiar with and maybe we can talk about some other other approaches people have taken. Sure. And yeah, so basically, well, I guess before we do that, just like a little background of what's already been tried. So there have been some super small trials in like Finland and I think Kenya. Are we talking about universal income now? Yeah. So you, sorry. Yeah. Universal <laughs> yeah, let's, basic let's, income. Let's, let's, trans- let's, uh, let's transition. So, so uh, before we get to the Andrew Yang thing you said, um, let's say, um, let's say, so anyway, so all this development of artificial intelligence is leading people in Silicon Valley to say, hang on, we're not going to have as many jobs as soon as these massive things like driving become automated and there's going to be a lot mm-hmm. of people out of work. And so this leads to proposals like universal income as put forward by Andrew Yang. <laughs> yeah, and, and so this this leads to to the proposal of of universal basic income as as popularized by by Andrew Yang and I'd say that's like the first his proposal is the first place it's been seriously considered within American politics, I think. So who is Andrew Yang? So he, he kind of started off as an entrepreneur working with some some different startup companies. And the place that most people know him from is he he ran in the Democratic primaries in 20, I guess starting in 2017, leading up to the, the 2020 election. That seems like yeah a long time before the election, but that's I think that's when it was happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and he's running for, I think, mayor of New York City right now Hmm. but yeah gained like a lot of momentum especially on the internet and and his so his big proposal and the thing that people probably know him best for is he has this policy proposal called the the freedom dividend it's basically just his like catchy word for ubi but it's it's a thousand bucks to every american over the age of 18 per month Mm. so that sounds nice huh yeah, and and of course, you know, the idea is that it's not enough to just live on, but it's enough mm-hmm. to kind of give you a floor in case something catastrophic happens or, you know, it it gives you it gives you a little bit more motivation to kind of take risks and mm-hmm. and kind of explore different career paths. Yeah, and as someone who has been in in places of financial insecurity that definitely tracks for me that having that sort of thing would would have that sort of effect but i guess a lot of people who are critical of universal basic income would say that well you can't do that because all these people if you tell them you don't have to work and you give them enough money then they're just not going to work right right that's the that's the most common complaint and as far as i know that's been kind of allayed by all the the experiments that have been done so far i mean none of them have 
have risen to the level of a thousand bucks a month that mm-hmm. Andrew Yang proposes, or you know, some people uh, propose even more. But yeah, I, I think I think that that objection has been a little bit dealt with. Yeah. So, what are some of the tests that have been done so far? So okay, so so in Finland, it was it was a two year study in 2017 and 2018, and the government gave gave 2,000 unemployed people between the ages of 25 and 58 monthly payments of 560 euros per month. Cool. With yeah, and the idea and the idea with universal basic income is is always like no strings attached. You don't have to have you know, there's no requirements. You just have to be between this age, and this age. Hmm. Would the age restriction be in the universal basic income, or is that just for for the ta- for the test? I mean, I guess that's that's something that's up for debate. I think it was probably just for this for this test. Yeah, I actually don't know like Andrew Yig's proposal if there's what the age restrictions are. I think, I think, I think I want to say it's everyone above the age of 18. I'm pretty sure that that sounds right. Yeah. Because, uh, one of the major points in the debates that you sent me was that when you start putting conditionals on the, on, on the people who are beneficiaries of the program, any, any restrictions at all, even if you think they're good things like, I don't know, your kids, your kids have to go to school. Uh, If you put those restrictions, there's always going to be people who get screwed over because of that. Right, right. And, and the the restrictions in themselves just create a bunch of, of bureaucracy that slows things down and make, make it, make the whole system more inefficient. Right. Potentially. Yeah. and, And people aren't, you know, discouraged from doing certain things like looking for a job or um you know leave, leaving the job that they have that they're not satisfied with because they have they have work requirements for welfare that kind of thing mm. so it helps them yeah branch out more than they would have otherwise okay so so let's, i guess let's keep let's keep going with uh, kind of the specifics of of andrew yang's plan so his his idea to fund this is to do a what's called a value added tax which is basically just like a small as I understand it, it's just like a small tax on on almost every transaction that big corporations do mm. to kind of bring bring that money back to the the citizens. And this is something that Europe most I mean, he said all advanced countries or all advanced economies are doing basically already in Europe and stuff. And if we just had half the value added tax rate that Europe does, we would be able to fund the a thousand dollars per month to to every American citizen thing. Wow, that seems pretty affordable. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's some other, you know, <laughs> there's a bunch of other other stuff in there that he mentions that would help to to fund it too. But so and, and, and so the value added tax is specifically targeting the extremely wealthy. Yeah, from from what I understand. So how then? How is universal basic income particularly special then? Like, how is that different from just saying, hey, look, we need to redistribute the wealth. We need to tax the wealthy at a greater rate than they're being taxed because they are benefiting from these vast uh, automational changes that were automational. (laughs) 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 
because they're benefiting from the vast uh, in- increase in uh, GDP that we've seen over the last 40 years while no one else is. Right, right. And and part of what what people on, on both sides like will say, left and right will say is that there are, there are things, uh, you know, there are people working, working mother, not working mothers, <laughs> mothers who are, are not working, for example, who put in a ton of work to create, I think what they call social, social capital, some kind of capital that, that is not reflected in, 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 in GDP. And there's like tons of value being created. That's not accounted for by either that or the unemployment rate. And we have to, we have to correct for that somehow yeah right it's uh the point that guy standing makes in one of those videos that you sent me that uh that we have to sort of reconceptualize what our idea of work is you know right now work means going to a job where you are subordinate to someone who has more authority more privileges than you because they're uh, wealthier or, or for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, this is, this is actually, I think a super, super interesting part of this, this whole conversation is, is people have this perception that work is not only what, what gives you, you know, the money to live off. It's what gives you your life meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and people wonder how, how people could function without having this like pillar of work. That's a part of their life and giving them, some kind of of meaning every day and i think eventually we're gonna have to reckon with that as a human species when when there's there's less and less for us to do Hmm. that's useful yeah it's uh guy standing's point that work that is not labor work that's not a job is still work and he he gives the example that you know caring for your elderly grandmother is work it's it's rewarding and to to say it's not is ridiculous yeah yeah i mean my mom is and i mean she's taking care of her elderly mother and like she's she's got to be there it's like exactly where she wants to be and she loves it but yeah i mean it's it's just as it's work just as much as anything else Mm -hmm. and so maybe we can find ways that work can be meaningful for us even if it's not a job even if it's not the the source from which our income comes yeah or it's like adding value to the economy i mean i think i think teaching is another thing that's Mm. i mean it's you know we we pay teachers but it's way way undervalued at least for you know for high school and, and middle school and elementary school you know public public school teachers it's like super undervalued definitely and yeah i mean i wonder i do wonder what the impact of of ai is going to be on teaching eventually i mean Mm. like way way down the road but it's a it's really interesting question because my i think my intuition and a lot of people's intuitions would be that that's going to be one of the last bastions of of kind of human human labor that that ai takes over because it, right. it requires so much understanding of like psychology and and like tailoring to people's specific needs and like you know d- discipline and and like classroom environment i don't know it's yeah maybe interesting. <laughs> yeah it is 
Um, I'm curious, speaking of work that is undervalued by our economy, how do you think art and music plays into this discussion of uh, reconceptualizing what we think of as work? Yeah, I, th I think that's a really interesting question because I think, I mean, if I'm being optimistic, I think it's possible it could lead to, to art and music being more highly valued just because those are, again, I think those are those are some of the last things that'll be taken over by by AI, if, if at all. I mean, you know, we already have like AI generated paintings that are like interesting to look at and AI music is getting there. It's it's not really anything yet, but I think it's only a matter of time. But I think, you know, even if even if we get to the point where, you know, the computer can like spit out a new Mars Volta song that sounds, you know, exactly like <laughs> you know, like <laughs> totally believable that it would have been actually recorded by by people. Mm -hmm. Like I think I think people will will still want to listen to music that's been spent like created by inspired humans. Mhm. Mm or like the act of uh, actively creating music in the present like improvising mm -hmm. like that's that's a, a reflection an expression of your present experience which while could be synthesized and uh and represented by an artificial intelligence it can never capture that exact moment that live spontaneous creation yeah yeah i think that's true it depends i mean depends how much we're relying on this like oh but there's like this ineffable spark of human you know uh ingenuity and creativity that the you know the, the ai will never be able to <laughs> i like the cupping get it, get it motions it. you're making with your head here i'm, I'm trying to do the, the italian like thing oh. <laughs> it looked a little bit more grabby <laughs> Yeah, 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 maybe you're right. There's some subconscious some, some stuff going on. There. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, but I do, I do think what I want to be, what I want to be optimistic about is that, like, I, I think art and and music, and, and specifically like creating art and music, will be one of the things that gives us meaning when when we don't have to work anymore that you mm. learning, you know, learning how to, how to play the guitar or paint, even if you can't do it that well in the end, like that is what will give you some sense of like satisfaction and accomplishment and, and meaning that if, and if more people can learn how to do those things, then, then it will have less of a crisis of, of like identity. Mm. So you're kind of, you're saying that the, the core purpose of art is to create bad art. Kind of. I mean, this is kind of what we talked about in our first episode, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think, I think bad art is undervalued for totally. bad art for the sake of people who are creating it is, is undervalued. Mm -hmm. If you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice we're on pretty much everyone out there give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating thanks for listening
This does make me think about going back to our what's it like to be a bat episode. I think there's a salient point that came up in that as well that's uh, poking its head up here, which is like like going back to could an AI create something in the same way that uh, you you create or <clears throat> could an AI cr- simulate the that spark you were talking about that precious precious ineffable human thing and we kind of explored in that episode the concept that if your present experience were exactly the same as a different experience then it would only have been one experience and so for an artificial intelligence to be able to simulate that experience it will never be able to actually capture that exact experience it'll create its own that may resemble it to us but it'll never actually capture that exact moment that has value yeah i guess the, i guess the question is how much value is is placed into the art by by the fact that a conscious being is creating it and having an experience of creating it which i, I don't think we actually know mm-hmm. which is not to say that i don't think that artificial intelligence could be conscious and in creating art express uh that same spark as well but it would just be a different instance a different moment in space time and so a different valuable experience yeah yeah it's it's all it's i think it's it's way more about how people are going to respond to it than than how how able that the ai is actually able to to capture things because i think i think that's kind of a foregone conclusion is that given enough time ai will be able to capture basically everything that we care about in in art mm. and probably probably better better than we can whatever whatever that means but <laughs> <laughs> the rickest rick <laughs> well i mean like imagine like it being able to figure out like a song that will just make you break down into tears <laughs> like in, inexplicably because it knows i mean maybe not inexplicably but like you know that that kind of like emotional power mm-hmm. and i feel like that's that's i mean w- once it gets like an understanding of human psychology and you know is is trained in the right way and and i think i think that's like within reach yeah seems seems legit to me <laughs> yeah. but i do i do think it's, it's possible that no, no matter no matter what how how good the the AIs get at art like people it's very possible people will just like not care and and keep valuing human created art over that in some in some way yeah totally because because creating art is also is not necessarily about creating some sort of profound breakthrough into transcendent understanding all the time you know it's about community it's about sharing an experience with other people yeah yeah of course, eventually it may become so blurry as to who or what is a human and what's an AI that the, <laughs> the actually, I mean, I think that's thinking about it now. I think that's actually the more likely end end game. So you're kind of in the Ray Kurzweil transhumanist camp. 
yeah like like imagine Neuralink in like a hundred years like what what we're gonna be able to do with that hmm. yeah it's exciting nervous nerve-wracking probably more nerve-wracking than exciting to be honest <laughs> for me yeah yeah I, I still don't know what to think about Neuralink really although I do think it is kind of inevitable and like that's going to be if we want to if we want to truly have all the benefits that this AI singularity could could offer that I think that's kind of what's going to do it if we want to experience things that no one's ever experienced before and 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 that kind of thing and then, not be abs not be obsolete yeah or just you know like like you know sure it would be awesome if if you know there's super intelligent ai that gets invented and then you know we have more food than we can ever want you know no one has to work like that'd be cool but we're still all you know living in this reality that's kind of very restricted and and tedious and and boring in a lot of ways and what if we could you know live inside this virtual reality that we can create absolutely anything we want in you know that that's interesting and i i'm s still super nervous about that because it kind of seems to me like we already have that have you ever felt that way that yeah we have a simulacrum of it but it's not it's not it's not actually living in you know deep dive vr whatever you want to call it where there's there's no there you can't distinguish between what's on the internet what's on the screen and what's you know what's your your actual reality sure I, but I, I what i mean though is specifically dreaming and it doesn't necessarily matter to me like to what extent you're connected to the internet or or whatever but just as human beings we have the ability to have an experience of transcendent creativity where you can it's just like an exploration and seemingly limitless i mean it seems to me and i, I think probably a lot of people share this perspective that in the dream state you're having an experience of infinity like the the scope of it the it, it it really is enough to get yourself lost in and i don't know i think there's something really precious about that yeah yeah that's like interesting and beautiful for sure i mean i mean but the problem with dreams is they're so slippery and you know a lot of people even if they try to learn lucid dreaming they it's really hard for them to do mm. and it's so yeah it's, it's unpredictable and and kind of unstable imagine imagine that like on on demand in like as vivid you know vivid detail as you want and with as much control as you want yeah that sounds like th th what dreams potentially are <laughs> uh, <laughs> but of course wouldn't alan watts then say that sure that would be great being all in control all the time but then eventually wouldn't you want to lose control Wouldn't you want to let go and just see what happens beyond knowing that you're safe maybe <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if i i mean you could simulate not being safe you could like you could tell like you know i'm yeah I mean, i'm sure once we have full dive vr this would be like within the capabilities to like make yourself forget that you're in a a simulation 
mm-hmm. like make yourself think that you know I mean, how do we know that's not happening right now? <laughs> but um, it, it's like it's like that game in Rick and Morty where <laughs> you get in and it's like you Roy. live the guy's whole life. <laughs> Roy. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I don't know. So, like, I was super excited about lucid dreaming for a while, and I tried and I tried, and I got to the point where I was, like, on the brink, and it always felt like there was something pushing me back, some conscious part of myself that was actively preventing myself from getting into that lucid state, the state of awareness that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, that state of control, of absolute power over your experience. And for a long time, I was really frustrated by that, but only recently I feel like I've started to accept that and to appreciate that maybe not being in control of everything all the time, maybe not having the security of knowledge that comes with that absolute power is more meaningful. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely closer to life. Mm-hmm. Right? Life. Life, this, that, uh, the play between on and off, the life and death, you know, it's like two sides of the same coin. You have to be face to face with the unknown, with uncertainty, in order for the life to be imbued and incandescent with value. Maybe. Oh, fuck yourself. (laughs) Or would you rather just be in a a heroin heroin dream for the rest of your life where everything's just peachy? I mean, I was okay. So, so I think the the problem with the heroin dream is that you're disconnected from everyone else, and like you're you're. I mean, you're killing your body. You're, uh, you know, addicting yourself to this substance. You're probably you know, you're, you're damaging your relationships, but imagine like being able to be in that reality that you want with, you know, the people you care about having like meaningful experiences together with other humans. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, a big part of me is just saying that's too good to be true. That it, it would be nice for probably a really long time, but eventually it's going to become stale if, if it's a mandatory state of being then that is going to become stale over time it's, it's possible yeah because i mean you get used to you can get used to anything and if you have like every option available to you it even that could 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 get old yeah i mean it's it's the same it's the same thing where you see like wealthy people walking around and you look at their faces and they just look miserable. It's like, or like they've got to stick up their butt. You know, not all, all wealthy people, but a lot of wealthy people, especially here on the East Coast, people very well-to-do, incredible, beautiful homes and like don't ever have to worry about money and they just look, angry and sad 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is having a lot of money, even if, you know, even if you're not worried about, like, financial stress and paying for things, like, it still creates a lot of, a lot of things you have to worry about, you know, a lot of things you have to keep track of, and, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people who have that much money, made that much money because they're working some kind of, like, high-octane, stressful job, you know? But why would you have to worry? I mean... If, if your financial security is met, if your livelihood is, is under control, then why worry? Shouldn't you be, like, you buoyant? I mean, I, yeah, you're right. So this is kind of like the human condition of, like, you know, you'll, you'll adjust to whatever you have and you'll be miserable somehow. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of what evolution has settled on to make sure that we don't get, you know, too complacent and and you know keep searching for food and and Mm. shelter and never never let our guard down because there might be like a tiger around the corner there might there might (laughs) (laughs) i think it's unclear how much that's going to apply in like a quote-unquote post-scarcity like utopia Mm. techno utopia yeah it's hard to say well there's another point here though that i want to touch on and that is that Maybe these people are in large part unhappy even in their prosperity because they are not fulfilling the obligations that they have to the rest of humanity. It would seem that you know the, the rich people who you find that are happy are contributing in some way to the welfare of, of you know everyone. Mm. I mean, yeah, Elon Musk being the I think probably a pretty good example. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's, I have my problems with him and he's, uh, kind of a loose cannon sometimes, but he seems like pretty happy overall, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, but I mean that he's literally the, the richest man in the world. So <laughs> is he really number one now? I mean, he, he became the richest man in the world. Like I think a couple months ago and then like Jeff Bezos overtook him again briefly. And now he's, I mean, it's all based on like stock prices. So it's like, right it's kind of not <laughs> real but it kind of is so <laughs> mm-hmm. but i mean he literally he literally was like oh that's he tweeted like oh that's cool or something to the effect of that and like back to work yeah <laughs> or oh interesting mm-hmm. um yeah i think i think it depends on how you're you're using your money or getting your money for like life satisfaction i, I think it's yeah i think it's hard to compare that to a situation where everything's automated and and we don't have to work because of that. Mm. So this is ties into something that I thought was really fascinating in the debate that you sent me between Carl and Oren. And that is a point that Carl made that our environment that we live in now, our economy is an entirely different landscape than it was 200 years ago before all of the resources of mother nature were either consumed or divided you know back mm-hmm. in the day where before we killed the buffalo back in the day where you could go out and claim some land and build a house and make a living that way mm-hmm. that doesn't exist anymore all of the wealth of our environment is accounted for and yeah we used up a lot of it and the rest of it got divided up and most of that was divided among the very wealthy and so then we 
we're kind of born into this system where all of the wealth already belongs to a very few people and in order to get some small slice of that prosperity you have to work for those people you have to make yourself subordinate to them you have to follow orders you have to do things they tell you to even if you don't like it even if it's a bad idea mm -hmm. interesting um and so the uh, the reason he brings this up is that there is a moral imperative that he's pointing out that people with wealth should be obligated to pay recompense for hogging those resources that's really interesting yeah yeah i i, I that feels that feels totally right to me mm -hmm. yeah one, one thing i've been thinking about a lot like i don't know i've just been kind of on a roll of like making predictions about like the next 50 years or like what's going to happen <laughs> one was i think the the next amendment to the constitution is going to be something to do with the internet or technology mm -hmm. and i think it could be sooner rather than later um but the other one is like i mean it's kind of a meme at this point that like communism doesn't work mm -hmm. right and then you know so, so on one side people say like, oh yeah communism has been tried so many times and it's always been like a huge disaster and it's always failed and then on the other side people are saying you know it's possible it'll work it just hasn't been done right in the right way mm -hmm. and i am i am suspicious that the technology we've developed in the past 50 to you know 100 years whatever you want to say that uh maybe not 50 basically like you know since computers were invented mm -hmm. that and the internet that's going to give us the infrastructure to actually do something like communism or socialism in like an effective way and that that's like basically what it's going to have to be in the end it's going to have to be something like that because the, the all the wealth wealth is going to be created by ais and big tech companies and so you're going to have to have some kind of like massive redistribution of of resources mm -hmm. totally so maybe we should I, we've kind of talked about it a little bit but maybe we should address some of the the common objections to to ubi yeah so i guess number one is but people are lazy and if you give them money to not work they won't work yeah yeah so, so like we said the the studies that have been done in, in finland and and kenya and um other places have kind of allayed that and like most of these objections like they, they seem to not hold much water uh, of course we don't know what's going to happen when it's all scaled up but um the, the other common one being that it's going to cause like run, runaway inflation mm. which is i mean it seems pretty pretty plausible right i mean it just seems like you're kind of printing money potentially yeah but that that's where the that's where the taxes come in because it, it is true like yes if you just paid people this amount of money without the taxes then it would lead to inflation but that's why you create these extra taxes on on big corporations and and the really wealthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so so essentially, we're just redistributing that wealth from the very wealthy who have profited from our economic boon. Which uh, I think Carl in the debate says that over the last forty years, our GDP has doubled, and yet the median American does not see any increase in well-being that all that wealth has gone to the extremely wealthy yeah yeah and this is the whole bernie sanders you know the the, the top one percent are making 90 percent of the the income and mm -hmm. 
mean, it's a pretty, I don't know about your friends, uh, but I mean, among my friends, it's a pretty common refrain that like billionaires just shouldn't exist. Like there's, there's no reason for anyone to have that amount of money. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, you know, we say we, yeah, it's like we have millionaires and we have billionaires. And I think in all of our heads, those are like very similar things cause they sound similar, but I mean, a billion is like a thousand times like several, several orders of magnitude more than a million. Right. Yeah. It's just like a stupid, stupidly large amount of money that it's mm-hmm. like beyond most people's comprehension. Um, and so yeah. Bernie, Bernie Sanders is very much explicitly like, yeah, billionaires should not exist. We should tax them out of existence, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I still don't know what to think about that. Like, what do you I mean, you generally, I do agree 100%. I'm just going to play the devil's advocate. There's one idea that I thought of that one could take the view that it's necessary to have people with just a disgustingly large amount of influence and power in fatalistic environments. For example, if you take the book Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, where you have this like government program to save humanity by creating a, a raft in space for to to house humanity for 10,000 years and you know it's like going along and then basically Elon Musk shows up and says well it's a pretty good thing but it's not going to work but he, because he's so insanely wealthy he's able to like fly up in his own privatized thing and like launch a mission out to some comet in order to get the resources and bring them back Mm-hmm. to to make the program work and stuff mm-hmm. so it's like yeah in s- situations like that i guess if you do happen to have someone who wants to play the hero and has the power to do so i guess that's a good thing you know like the world with batman is better than the world without batman yeah yeah i mean there, there's there's like i don't think there's any way to get away from certain people are just going to have ideas and be able to implement implement them in a way that that basically everyone will want to pay the money for it, mm-hmm. and maybe like Bill Gates or or Elon Musk, and yeah, I think it's just a question of what what do we do with those those people and their their like fortunes once they once they make them? Because in a sense, you know, I mean, well, it, it's it's a it's a big question whether people like deserve anything, <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but. Um, in some sense, you know, they're the one who, ones who had the idea and they're the ones who implemented it. And mm-hmm. there's a sense in which they, they deserve it. But I mean, again, like billion, billion is just like such a huge number that, that they could be totally have totally, you know, cushy lives with, with way less money than that. So, yeah, it's like they totally deserve to be wildly recompensed for mm-hmm. their, but, uh, contributions to humanity and on the same time like how much do you need to be happy mm-hmm. right like haven't there been studies that show that happiness increases as income increases up until about 100 200 grand a year at which point people beyond that have a decreased happiness yeah yeah something like that and uh you know what i was positing earlier maybe 
a large influence for that decrease in happiness is uh, people who are internally racked. Maybe they feel guilt or um, just malaise because they're not fulfilling their duty to society. Now, obviously, that's not the same case with someone who has contributed greatly to increasing everyone's wealth. At the same time, maybe it's not so much a reward for those incredibly wealthy people to have extra, extra money. Like maybe that doesn't really do anything for them after a certain point in terms of, of well-being and satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very possible. Connects a little bit to, to maybe one of the last things I want to talk about, which is this um, debate between Charles Murray, who we talked about in our uh, one of our previous episodes on Sam Harris, and this other political scientist and writer, Jared Bernstein. Um, so Charles Murray is definitely like kind of conservative libertarian, and Jared Bernstein is more liberal. And I think I think Bernstein actually served as uh, like an economic advisor to Joe Biden when he was vice president. So he's been like pretty high up on the in the food chain. Um, but what I, what I think is really interesting about UBI is that it it kind of breaks down some of the polarizations that that have happened in in American politics. Because in this particular case, you have the right wing guy Charles Murray arguing for UBI, and Jared Bernstein, the the left wing guy, arguing against it. And basically, so so their two arguments are basically Murray wants to do away with all welfare and replace it with $13,000 a year direct to every citizen under, I think, $30,000 income. And then it like kind of slopes off so that if you make 60000 or above, you only get half that or something. And like I said, that, that goes along with doing away with like all welfare. And Bernstein's concern is that that's going to result in a bunch of money going to people who don't need it rather than the people who are on welfare and do need it. Mm. And that's, that's his like main, main criticism besides the fact that he just doesn't believe that AI is going to actually replace as many jobs as people think it will. Right. Yeah. Then there's the question of like, which programs are more effective when approached in a like giving people a lot of cash approach and which are more effective when you cut out the middleman entirely. For example, healthcare probably makes more sense rather than to give someone a wad of cash and say, go to the open free market healthcare. Uh, probably makes more sense to have like a universal healthcare sort of environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of Marie's proposal was like, 3,000 of the 13,000 should be spent like on health insurance basically. Mm. But I, th I think still in the open market. I mean, I <laughs> I think the healthcare thing is so ridiculous because every other advanced country has universal healthcare and it's like I, I just think yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's> really angry. <laughs> what if we were to actually look at the data and see what works and then do that? Yeah, because like our healthcare is like so much more expensive and way less effective than in any other country that, that's, yeah. you know, at our level of development. It's just so, so dumb. Super dumb. <laughs> yeah. Freedom. 
Spurdum. 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 So, so another thing Murray brings up that I think is is, I mean, it's pretty provocative, but I, I think it's I think it's a big part of what we have to think about around all this uh, stuff with UBI and automation and jobs going away. Um, so his argument, and he he's worked a lot on on IQ and that kind of thing. To you know, much much controversy, and I definitely don't endorse all of what he is he has like said or argued for but i i think it it is pretty clearly true that not everyone is cut out for every job and that for for everyone there is a cutoff of like how demanding or advanced a job can be in in terms of like cognitive capacity like there's a limit there you can't just you know you can't just like not everyone can just keep rising up to like jobs that are harder and harder and, and more intellectually demanding. Mm. Although I would, I would caution against putting it on a, a hierarchy because there are different modes of thinking and engaging with the world that people can do or be that are equally valid, but as you're saying, better suited for different tasks. You know, it's, it's not that the smartest person is mo- most effective. They're most effective at a particular type of task. Totally, totally. And it's, it's. I mean, the problem is that, that of course, you know, there, there, are, there are things that aren't like super intellectually demanding that are very valuable and like we need people to do them. Mm-hmm. The, the question is, is more like what society values and, and specifically what capitalism values because that mm-hmm. at the moment and probably for the foreseeable future is is this kind of intellectually demanding work like that's mm. what that's what gets you the big bucks and definitely and there's yeah there's not really a way around that and i think the 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 solution is to val- value things that aren't intellectually demanding more but i i think the way to do that isn't necessarily to like pay people more money to do them i think the the thing to do is to you know have a guaranteed income and then from there people can do whatever they want to do or or can do yeah that seems really valid to me as someone who's as i said been in places of financial insecurity and who's worked various low-paying jobs like that really would kind of be the the best the best world you know where you you have the freedom to work to mm-hmm. apply yourself in a way that doesn't force you into stress and like beat you over the head with the fear of, of starving to death yeah yeah totally and yeah I don't, I don't think it's at all that we should stop retraining people or stop trying to retrain people because there are like specifically like in with the green energy sector there's like way more demand for jobs than can be met and I'm sure for a lot of those things, we can retrain people, um, especially, you know, people who are working in like the oil and gas industry mm. can po- probably be retrained relatively easily. But I do, I do think, I think there is a limit to that at a certain point when enough jobs are being taken over by, by AI. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And it feels like maybe as the more intellectual jobs become more and more automated, that that kind of forces us to adopt a level playing field where we do as a society value 
all sorts of vocations and endeavors as being equally equally valuable rather than having a hierarchy of intelligent people getting the big bucks Mm -hmm. yeah I i think that's ultimately what we want yeah i mean really who really wants to live in a world where the 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 right attitude is to be well you're not smart enough so you don't deserve to be happy you don't deserve to live you person <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's completely unnecessary yeah maladjusted even yeah i mean it's 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 i mean it's continuing what's what's been happening for you know 4. Point whatever 3.6 billion years of of evolution of life which is just you know survival of the fittest and competition and all that stuff but mm. we're we have we have the ability to be be past that now mm-hmm. so i think we should be past it yeah <laughs> so yeah well kind of ground ba- groundbreaking horizon we're on yeah like, i mean it does it does seem too good too good to be true in a way like i'm I'm open to the possibility that just it just won't work for for one reason or another, but so, so I think something like UBI has to happen at some point. Yeah, I mean, our data seems to show that it very well may work, so it seems worth exploring. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah. like everything's peachy right now. Yeah, I mean, I do think I do think COVID has played an inter- interesting role because I mean, basically, we've had these like two or three stimulus payments at this point which is kind of like UBI light for a limited time. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. I think maybe, maybe that'll convince more people that it's a good idea, but I do wonder, like part of me has wondered if, if, you know, if the pandemic draws on long enough that it could, it could lead to quicker adoption of UBI just because the, the, the contrast between people who are able to work, you know, like cushy tech jobs from home and, and people who still have to go to low income work. That's like on the front lines like that, that contrast is just so huge that I think, I don't know. I think it'll, it'll draw more people's attention to the inequality. Definitely. And maybe the extremely wealthy will have to step up and, and do their part to look after the people who are, more at risk more more uh challenged by their financial situation mm-hmm.